This is the Passive Real Estate Podcast, the premier podcast for passive real estate investors. Matt Jones interviews experienced passive investors who share their industry secrets and active investors who show you different ways to invest passively. Welcome back to the Passive Real Estate Podcast. I'm Matt Jones. And today on the podcast, we have Will Matheson. Will is the co-founder of Matheson Capital, a real estate investment firm based in Charleston, South Carolina, and focused on multifamily and student housing properties across the Southeast. Welcome. It's great to have you on the show, Will. Thank you for having me, Matt. What else would you like the audience to know about yourself? Uh, I mean, you know, not too much. Uh, if we're, you know, we're based in Charleston. I've lived in Georgia, North, North Carolina, and South Carolina. That's why we focus there. And it just so happens to be part of the fastest growing area of the country. So all those things work together nicely. Yep. Great metrics there. And how did you get started with real estate investing? So I actually, I got started, my first job out of college was as a broker for Marks and Millichap out of their Raleigh office. So that was, that was our introduction to real estate. And the first time we ever, Matheson Capital actually started in 2015 um, because we put a hard money loan on someone's property. They had a 1031 exchange, shortfall. They needed a million dollars really quickly. So we created a hard money loan. Uh, so that was, that was our first investment, even though it was on the debt side. And then January, 2018, we got into our first acquisition. So we've done about a dozen or more than a dozen since then. Started small though, started small two unit deal. Yeah. And then currently are you more uh, passive or active or a bit of both with your real estate? We are primarily, uh, we're primarily active. We are a sponsor on the vast majority of our properties across the Southeast. What kind of properties do you invest in? Student housing and multifamily. We've only, since we've been buying in the Carolinas, which has been our last roughly dozen or so acquisitions, we've been the primary sponsor with the exception of two where we worked with a larger private equity firm out of Texas on two student housing acquisitions. What size of properties are you looking at? Currently, we're looking at, I would say, you know, we'd like to be looking at anything over $15 million dollars. Uh, but, you know, if a good opportunity that $7 million comes up, we're going to take a look at it. I always specify price point because, you know, I, I don't like to give them the unit counts. You know, oh, we want 100 units. We want 50 units. We want this. We want that. Last year, we bought 168 units in Greenville, North Carolina. We thought it was a really great value add opportunity. But we also bought 20 luxury townhomes in Boone, North Carolina. You know, we 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 chase the yield and the returns. We don't check the box on unit size. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, why do you focus on multifamily and student housing right now? When we were first getting started moving from the principal side over, or moving from brokerage side over the principal side, our, sincerely, our one of our biggest criteria was, what can we do that is going to be the most forgiving and the hardest to have a very bad negative impact? And as you know, as brokers, we did a lot of retail. You would see someone buy a net lease retail deal, they'd lose a tenant, and they'd lose a huge amount of their equity. So the reason we focus on multifamily and student housing is, you know, obviously things can go poorly. We're seeing that right now with the hikes and in interest rates. But if you're diversified over, let's just say at a minimum 20 tenants or upwards of 160 tenants, you're constantly having a little bit of variation, but it allows a lot of opportunity for growth. It allows a lot of opportunity for improvements, and it allows a lot of diversification, specifically in a market that's reasonably undersupplied. 
Yep. And are you still focused on value add deals? Because the reason I ask is some people think this is a terrible time in the market cycle to do it. Other people are are you know all in still on value add. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? So we've done both value add and let's just call it newer construction stabilized. In 2021, we were buying properties that were 2021 construction. In 2022, we bought a 2018 construction property and a 2007 construction property that was class A and didn't need any improvements. My What I will say about value add is we, we cut our teeth doing it. We've done a lot of value add. I think there are value add opportunities out there, but I think you need to be wary about you know the property that's had five owners in the last seven years who have all been doing their value add initiative, and now the broker's telling you that oh, if you you know change the panels on the cabinets or replace the hardware on the cabinets and only do that, you know I have the smart thermostat, boom, that's your fifth level value add project. No, I'm just not buying into that one. If if I'm seeing if I'm going after a value add property, it has to be original, you know, 1990s or interiors or something like that. I don't want something that's had five owners in the last four years. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, how are you finding your deals? So we pretty much exclusively work through brokers. As a former broker myself, I've got to say I think they had a ton of value. Um, just Personally, going through, I've never seen a mailing campaign be particularly successful. I could be wrong, but I have not seen it. Um, it's also trying to find deals yourself is just a massive, massive time investment, very low probability of success. We very rarely buy properties on market. Most of the properties we buy come off market through brokers, but we very infrequently go directly to the seller. Yeah, I hear you there. I mean, the vast majority of deals that you come across are going to be through uh, broker relationships. I mean, you're, you're right. You can find some off-market ones by doing direct-to-seller type of stuff, but it's a lot of work for very few deal, you know, the deals that are going to come across your plate. Well, it's also the case that, you know, any any seller with a decently sized asset has probably talked to 20 brokers. So it's not like they're unaware of what the value of their property is. And if I come to them and say, hey, I'll, I'll pay this, I'll pay this, they could probably say, oh, I've got a broker telling me it's worth 10% more, which a broker would never, never do. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, brokers, uh, I absolutely appreciate the good work that brokers do. They're a vital part of this business. And I agree with you. At the same time, sometimes they look at deals with the uh, rosy colored glasses where, where you're know, like, oh, everything's great. And and uh, you can absolutely pay 10% more for this deal. Well, okay, let's look at the actual numbers and stress test it and see what I, what's real and what's not real. Yeah, you uh, know, if somebody buys it, they were right. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then they might lose their pants uh, on the deal. Who knows? But you're right. A deal is worth whatever somebody is willing to pay for it. Um, so when you're looking at deals, uh, how do you underwrite to make sure that you're not overpaying? So, I mean, it's really tough because I don't think there's any there's any one specific rule. And I'll, I'll give you a few examples. We're doing a property right now. Hopefully it'll be closed by the time this airs, where we're buying an assumption loan. So let's say the loan is at 3.3%. The cap rate's north of 5.3%. That 200 basis point spread between the cap rate and the debt provides really nice cash flow. That's very appealing. However, I would be, you know, to be very blunt, last year I was buying some very aggressive properties because 
I thought the rents were significantly below market uh, as much as 30% in some situations. And, you know, one of our acquisitions last year in the first year of ownership will have moved the rent roll 67%. So sometimes we're going to look for cash flow, but sometimes we're going to say these really are under market. We can afford to be negatively levered right now and we can really juice the returns on the back end. Like I said, you know, we don't chase unit size. We don't chase a certain vintage. We say, where can we drive returns for our investors? What's a typical return that you try to aim for uh, for your investors? I mean, historically, in past performance, is not a guarantee of future results, mm -hmm. normal yep. disclaimer. Historically, our average LPIRR has been 40%. Holy that's moly. been driven... Yeah, that's been driven a lot by shorter term holds when we were getting started. We bought our first property when I was 25. Uh, we wanted to have a lot of short holds, buy, sell, buy, sell. You know, we told investors, I'm asking you to date me. I'm not asking you to marry me. You know, <laughs> we'll get in and out of this thing and we'll prove ourselves to you. Um, so we did a lot of that, which really drove up those numbers. But, you know, we typically, if it's not in the high teens, for an LP, we're talking at least 18%, preferably we like to show them something starting with a two. We we don't really get too excited about it. Tell me about one of your favorite deals that you've ever done. Favorite deal I've ever done, probably a property named Timberstone in Charlotte, North Carolina. We bought it for $7.69 million March, 2021, sold it March, 2022. It was like a year and four days. Ten and a half million dollars. We were ninety-five plus percent occupied. I think the entire time, investors made out very, very well on that. At least a fifty percent return. We had a great operational partner, Fabian Nagara, over at Stantino Management, who was handling a lot of the day-to-day -day property management renovations. Just doing a tremendous job. Great deal. Very little headache. Probably my favorite deal ever. Yeah, that's a pretty nice return for such a, a short uh, hold period. And then uh, tell me about a problem that you encountered with a real estate investment and how it was handled. So uh, our nightmare property actually sold as a portfolio with Timberstone. Uh, we bought a property, Greenwood Village, December 2019. We sold it March 2022. It was 24 units. It was very nice, you know, gated, nice green rolling hills on the property, but that what made it very appealing to us um, also made it very appealing to the type of tenants you don't want. Uh, COVID hit that property. We couldn't evict people. We had a lot of drug dealing taking place on the property. We had to funnel money into it to keep it afloat. We had to pay yield maintenance to get out of it. Learned a lot of lessons that I could go on. Um, that one, you want to avoid yield maintenance, non-payroll properties in rougher areas you want to steer clear of. We did we did make it out of there with a slight return for our investors. We were very thrilled about that. My brother and I, um, as the sponsors, were the first people pumping money in to keep that thing afloat. But it was it was tough. It was a really tough deal. We've never had anything else like it, and we're uh, grateful that we don't own it anymore. And so with your, the properties that you're looking at now, are you, you know, with these value add type things or, or as well as new construction, are you looking at more like A and B or C and B uh, type properties or, or what is your kind of uh, target uh, buy box? So uh, we, we can do A, we can do B, we can do C. The important thing 
I think what can't be understated is when you're dealing with, let's just call it a rougher property, you definitely want to have payroll on site. You want to have management on site. So at least you have some sort of presence. You can be reporting things. You're building more of that sense of community with the tenants. Because if you have a rough area and, you know, 90% of the time nobody is on site, it's uh, a lot goes on that you can't keep track of. It scares off some of the tenants you'd rather have. It makes it more appealing for the tenants you'd rather not have. It was, you definitely want to have payroll for the rougher properties. Yeah. So are you saying that essentially for those rougher properties, it's better to have a, a larger unit count, you know, cause like with 24 units, it, it, you can't really have a full-time on-site staff, uh, but with a you know larger property now you can. Uh, and so then they can pay attention to what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis uh, with that. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, tell me about your team. Like, what's your role on the team? And, and tell me about your partners. So, you know, the firm is primarily run by me and my twin brother, Evan. I handle a lot of the legal aspects, brokerage communications, uh, overall strategy. Evan, Evan does a lot of, well, Evan does all of the upfront analysis. At least he did until we brought on a few new teammates earlier this year. We did that for consistency's purpose. Also, he's a real wizard in Excel. He Every time he got a job before we started Maths and Capital, he would go in and rework all the financial models at whatever firm he joined. So yeah, Evan does a lot of the analysis. We both have responsibilities in terms of raising capital. I think he does a little more asset management. And uh, yeah, we added two new team members recently. One of them does more analysis, equity. Another is more asset management specialized. Yeah. And how can a passive investor determine whether or not you and your team are a good match for what they're looking for? Uh, well, you know, the best way to do that, obviously, take a look at our website. We're always happy to talk about our track record. We're very proud of that. Of our 13 acquisitions to date, we've exited seven with that average return I mentioned previously. And if you go onto our website and fill out the, you know, invest with us form, we reach out to every single person. Happy to hop on a call, make sure we're the right fit for you. Okay. Makes sense. And what kind of questions should a passive investor ask, uh, you know, potential sponsors before they invest? I honestly think one of the biggest things people should ask is how many deals have you exited? I remember getting started, you know, our first acquisition, like I mentioned, was in 2018, raising money in 2019, 2020. We were very focused as a company on buying and selling properties. So we'd buy it and sell it 13, 14, less than two years later, because we specifically wanted to be able to show people, hey, we know how to take a deal from start to finish. It's not pro forma, imaginary returns. Let's see what happens. These are concrete money returned to people in the bank. I'm always somewhat amazed by firms that, and I see it. I mean, we all see it. They raise hundreds of millions of dollars, but they've never sold a property. Um, they've bought a lot of them. They've never sold them. And it's not concrete until it sells. So, I mean, that that's one of the things that I always would look out for is how many times has this group gone full cycle? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, to have that uh, confidence that they've kind of been through the ringer and, and experienced every kind of situation that you, uh, you, you would typically find with a real estate deal so that they you know that they're going to be able to handle what may come in a future deal. Well, I mean, even even if they haven't experienced everything, it, at least it's the fact that you've taken something 
I mean, to a certain extent, if I buy a property in January of 2021 and I have never sold it, my operations could be good, but they could be bad. We don't know. But at least if you go and you buy and you bring it that asset all the way to completion, you have some concrete result of we know that we were able to get from A to B. Mm-hmm. Yep, that makes sense. All right. Are you ready for a speed round? I am. What's your favorite part about passive real estate investing? I think it opens a lot of opportunities to people that otherwise would not be available. You're not investing in some stock. You're not investing in some uh, mutual fund or anything. You actually get to you actually get to take control and make choices as it pertains to your financial future. And what do and you the know? tax benefits are pretty good too. Oh yeah, absolutely. You got all of the tax benefits that uh, you don't have in any really other type of uh, uh, asset that you can have out there. Uh, so what do you know now about passive real estate investing that you wish you knew when you first got started? Hmm. Oh, goodness. I mean, marketing, marketing, marketing is incredibly important. Uh, as I mentioned, I see groups that have never sold an asset raising so many, so many millions of dollars. I'm always blown away by that, but it's great marketing. And uh, what's a book that you can recommend to other investors? I like to not go with something that everybody's heard of, like Rich Man, Poor Man, or 10X or anything like that. So I always recommend Letters of a Businessman to His Son by G. Kingsley Ward. This was actually gifted to me by the son in that title. Um, Hmm. It's just a great book covering all sorts of business aspects. I always say this, my favorite chapter has to do with a guy trying to start a business he goes to the bank and the bank says no i'm not going to give you this money of course as the entrepreneur is really upset and it's like oh no you know i want this i want this and someone points out you know this lender probably knows more about this than you do they might be doing you a huge favor it's hard for me as a sponsor to want to concede that but every now and then you know if you can't finance a deal maybe you shouldn't buy it <laughs> yeah i suppose that's good good insight uh, how can our listeners get in contact with you if they want to learn more about what you have going on? So they can find us at our website, math, uh, mathcap.com, M-A-T-H-C-A-P.com. If you just go to the investors tab, register there, we'll reach out to you. You can also reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. I'm just Will Matheson on LinkedIn. All right. I'll include those links in the show notes. And finally, is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't covered yet? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to go business related. What I will say is uh, I also volunteers the president of a homeless veteran shelter here in Charleston, South Carolina, lowcountryveterans.org. If you know, if you've been getting some nice returns in real estate, you want to give back to those who have served, you can learn more about us at lowcountryveterans.org. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate that you give back as well. Uh, Will, it's been great having you on the show and I wish you a great rest of your day. Oh, thank you for having me, Matt. Subscribe to this podcast to stay updated on new episodes. Leave a review to let us know that you enjoy the content. There are tons of ways to invest in real estate that you can explore by reading Matt Jones's book called Book About Real Estate. It summarizes many top real estate books all in one. Find it on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Google Play, or barnesandnoble.com. If you want to learn more about passive real estate investing, go to hawkwingcapital.com.